This is an ABC podcast. Before the Enlightenment, people were mm, not really thinking for themselves. They got their guidance from religious doctrines and traditions and people in authority. And what Kant wanted people to do um, was to be courageous and to go out and think for themselves. So he gave the Enlightenment a motto. It was sapere ode, which is Latin for dare to be wise. But unfortunately, that sort of courage is getting rare. We need to get that courage back. That's the esteemed education expert Stephen Schwartz on 21st Century Enlightenment. Hello there, this is Tom Switzer from Radio National here. Welcome to another episode of Between the Lines and stay tuned for my chat with Stephen Schwartz, a former Vice-Chancellor of three universities. But first, North Korea. Well, while all eyes have been sharply focused on the Russian invasion of Ukraine, one familiar figure on the international stage yearns to be back in the spotlight. And so to get the attention he craves, he decides to test and launch a few intercontinental ballistic missiles. We're talking, of course, about the North Korean dictator, Kim Jong-un. But one person who has maintained a close watch on what's been happening on the Korean peninsula is Jean Lee. She's a past guest on this program. Jean is a senior fellow at the Wilson Centre in Washington, D.C. From 2008 to 2017, Jean made dozens of extended reporting trips to North Korea. And in 2011, she became the first American reporter to join the Pyongyang Foreign Press Corps. And oh, she's the host of that excellent true crime podcast, The Lazarus Heist, (laughs) that's on the BBC World Service. The series uncovers the exploits of North Korean hackers and cyber criminals. Jean, great to have you back on Between the Lines. Great to be back and thank you for that plug. I appreciate it. Now, the missile tests were big news a few years ago. Then things went quiet for a while, but it seems that Kim is back with a renewed vigour. How many launches have there been this year? Yes, it has been an unprecedented pace. So we had seven ballistic missile launches by North Korea in January alone. And, you know, I actually had to go back and count because I've almost lost count, but I believe it's been (laughs) 11 rounds of illicit ballistic missile tests and launches uh, since since the start of the new year. They haven't gone completely quiet over the years, but the launches had been fairly small, but these are much more provocative launches and they're getting bigger, bolder. I mean, the, the, the missiles that were launched recently are monsters. And so certainly are getting the world to sit up and pay attention. And there's controversy raised by the Washington Post, Gene, about whether the most recent test, I think that was March 24 whether that was indeed genuine, what can you tell us? Yeah, you know, we saw quite an amazing video from North Korea. A lot of people are calling it a little bit a little bit of Top Gun. You've got Kim Jong-un in a bomber jacket, strolling in slow-mo in front of this monster missile that I just mentioned. But 
analysts, you know, all we have is their state media. And so experts will take a very, very close look at this. And they really live, they thrive on looking at this stuff so closely and breaking it down. And a couple of them have said, hey, wait a minute, this doesn't look right. It doesn't look like the same weather as Pyongyang had that day. And so they did raise the question of whether this truly was a successful launch of what North Korea calls its Hwasong-17. And let me just describe what this is. This monster missile, huge, massive, I can't even imagine what it's like to see it up close and in, in person. But this is a an intercontinental ballistic missile designed to reached the United States, and also designed to fire and carry multiple warheads. And so this would certainly mark a major development in North Korea's missile technology. Now, there's some debate. The Japanese are still saying, well, we think that uh, this is a major development and this is what North Korea claims. And so there's some back and forth. I would say, regardless, we do know that they've been testing this missile there have been a couple tests of different elements of this massive missile. And so they, every, with every test, they mark a development, they make an improvement. And so regardless, Kim Jong-un feels that he has had enough tests of this to prove that it's functional. And I think we'll see him roll it out uh, in the coming weeks. But yeah, this the other thing that this really tells us, and this is something, you know, we just don't know because we're not there. They've shut us out. North Korea has not opened the border to its own people or to us for more than two years. It means that we rely on North Korea's propaganda. It means that they can shape the narrative. Yes, well, you say the North Koreans have shut us out, but that hasn't stopped uh, sanctions being imposed in response to the latest missile tests, right? Well, every one of these ballistic missile tests is a violation of UN Security Council resolutions. And we are starting to see the UN Security Council gather and meet for these highly provocative and very dangerous tests. But the problem has been that China and Russia have have not agreed with the United States, I mean, no surprise there, they have not agreed with the United States and the U.S. allies on condemning these ballistic missile launches. And so we are starting to see that divide between the United States and its allies and Russia and China defending North Korea. We're seeing that divide deepen. And I have to say, I think that global issues, especially around Ukraine, certainly don't help when it comes to that divide. So we are seeing, in terms of sanctions, we are seeing the U.S. Treasury impose new sanctions on companies and individuals that they are they say are responsible for the proliferation, and Japan as well has imposed. So we're seeing some of these bilateral sanctions, but we have yet to see new UN Security Council sanctions. But the United States is saying that they're going to push for them. So we'll see if they're able to get China and Russia on board. On ABC Radio National, this is Between the Lines. I'm Tom Switzer and my guest is Jean Lee, Senior Fellow at the Wilson Centre in Washington and veteran reporter and former Bureau Chief stationed in Pyongyang. You know, this all brings to mind uh, the Donald Trump détente with uh, the North Korean dictator back in 2018. In retrospect, Jean, was it worth Trump's effort? I think it's always worth an effort to try to deal with the North Koreans because only when they get to those negotiations will they find a way to get past this tension. However, I think we need to go back beyond 2018 and look to see what 
then-President Trump did in 2017, which was to raise tensions to a point where we were on the brink of war. So that was the fire and fury period. And so that's a similar period to what we're seeing now, where North Korea is launching these weapons. And what President Trump did at the time was react to them. And I would say maybe overreact to them, because what that did was give North Korea the ammunition or... Not literally, well, perhaps literally, but no pun intended there, but give him the justification (laughs) to keep building. And so what we don't want to see right now is a rise in tensions around the Korean Peninsula to the brink of war and to feed, to basically hand Kim Jong-un the propaganda that he needs on a platter. And so it's a really, really difficult approach that the United States and other countries have to make. They have to acknowledge and deal with the urgency, but without overreacting. So I think it's a it's a huge uh, challenge. Uh, so I think that it's important to look back at that and also recognize that if they hadn't, if he hadn't given Kim Jong-un an opportunity to test as much as he did in 2017, he wouldn't have accomplished so much with his arsenal. Because I do think by the end of 2017, we were in a very, very dangerous place. We're just being reminded of that now with the tests of the ballistic missiles and the the wide range of new missiles that he is de- that Kim Jong Un is developing right now. We're talking about policy approaches. How then has the Biden administration distinguished itself from the Trump administration when it comes to North Korea? Jean. I think the Biden administration has taken a, a bit of a different approach, which is not to react too dramatically the way that President Trump did. Uh, and some people say that is going back to a policy under the Obama years that was called strategic patience, so trying to wait North Korea out. But that hasn't really yielded any any success either. And so it's a really tricky situation. So I, I do commend the restraint, and yet there's not enough proactive action to stop North Korea from developing its nuclear arsenal. And that's also dangerous because the longer we let them continue, the more dangerous it becomes, not only for South Korea, also for the North Koreans who are going to continue to live under sanctions, and I would say for global security. So it... (laughs) It's, it's difficult. And I think the strategy that we're seeing is to tie this in with uh, U.S.-China uh, relations and to try to pitch North Korea as one area where China and the U.S. may actually agree. It's a very tricky approach. Mm. It'll be interesting to see if they're able to get China on board. Uh, but it's been wrapped into its Indo-Pacific strategy. So as part of a larger, broader strategy when it comes to China. So it's a very different approach rather than that me and you bromance that that Trump yeah. uh, Trump had with Kim Jong-un. Uh, but I think it's a, it's a more strategic, I think, an approach that will take time. And that brings us to South Korea, Gene. Um, they've just elected uh, Yoon Seok as their new president. He doesn't take office just yet. But what are the signs and indications of how the South Korean leader, or the incoming South Korean leader, will deal with uh, Kim Jong-un? Yeah, we know that President-elect Yoon is a conservative. Uh, he's from the, from the current opposition party, and then that the conservatives will be the ruling party starting uh, next month. And so the other thing that we know is that that, really, that that party tends to align itself very closely with the United States. So we will see, hopefully, good coordination with the United States and perhaps an improvement in the relationship with Japan, because Japan is also an important partner in the region. I hope that we don't see 
too much of a too hard line of stance so that there's no room for diplomacy because I think South Korea does have to play a role in determining what happens on the Korean Peninsula as well and to leave open some opportunity to engage North Korea in concert with the United States and Japan. But we are seeing some pretty feisty language from Kim Jong-un's sister, Kim Yo-jong. Um, she's put out some blistering statements or some statements in her name have come out this in the last couple of days. And so I think there's going to be some rough, it's going to be a rough ride on the Korean Peninsula in the months ahead. And that's not surprising. In a sense, they want to welcome, it's not welcoming is perhaps not the right word, but they mm. do want to send a very strong message, the North Koreans do, to the South Koreans with this new president. And they also, again, want to raise tensions. And so part of all of that will fit into Kim Jong-un's strategy of just manufacturing tensions on the Korean Peninsula. And that gives him more rationale to keep building weapons and to tell his people he's protecting them. So it all fits into that. It plays into that strategy that Kim Jong-un has been mapping out for 2022. Yeah, and he's all too often described as unpredictable. What's his long game, Gene? I mean, what does he hope his nuclear ambitions will achieve? I tend not to see him as unpredictable because I've seen this pattern, this strategy over the years on the ground. And, and you know, if we were in North Korea, and we're not, unfortunately, but we would see everything right now focused on glorifying the Kim family. And seeing that can sort of help you understand how they look, how we should be looking at the North Korean calendar. This year is all about glorifying the Kim family. It's Kim Jong-un's 10-year anniversary of rule. His father would have turned 80 and his grandfather would have turned 110. And we call these milestone, they're big milestone anniversaries. And this is an occasion for Kim Jong-un to shore up his legitimacy, try to create a sense of unity, and to try to give his people a sense of pride over the past couple of years that have been very, very rough economically. And so but weapons are a big part of that. What he wants with his weapons is twofold. It's not only to show his people that he's the right person to lead the country, but he wants to also use them for future nuclear negotiations. So each of these tests helps to shore up his legitimacy at home, but he's going to use them in future nuclear negotiations to compel everyone to pay attention to North Korea and deal with North Korea. And I do think what he wants is he wants the world to recognize North Korea as a nuclear power. And if they do that, he can hold on to his nuclear weapons and won't have to give them up like the United States and other members of that club. It's terrifying. Uh, but I do think he wants to negotiate parts of the program in exchange for concessions. But, you know, I'll just mention one thing, which is that the sister in her statements did threaten South Korea and remind South Korea that had nuclear weapons. And for me, this was such a telling line in her statement, because this is what North Korea is going to do. They want to hold on to their nuclear weapons and always threaten South Korea and other nations as well by saying, listen, if you don't play our game, don't forget, we've got nuclear weapons. And so there is a consequence and a repercussion to acknowledging North Korea or accepting North Korea as a nuclear power. It will mean that they will always have the power to threaten the Korean Peninsula. Yeah, and I think as we've discussed uh, in an earlier program, Gene, you know, Kim looks at what happened to Gaddafi in 2011, just before uh, Kim came to power and he saw that uh, the Libyans had given up their nuclear weapons and look what happened to Gaddafi. <laughs> He's buried 10 feet under. 
You're absolutely right. And that is a really good point. And the North Koreans, as we discussed before, mentioned that to me. And I think we only have to look at Ukraine uh, as a country as well without nuclear weapons uh, and, and a country, Russia, with nuclear weapons. And in a sense, that has become part of the calculation. So North Korea is going to look at this and say, see how vulnerable Ukraine is and also see how powerful Russia is. They're untouchable. And that's the position North Korea wants to be in. I mean, we certainly hope that North Korea won't use its weapons uh, in a first strike. But the threat will always remain there. And I think that the South Koreans need to look at what Kim Yo-jong said and remember that this is what they may be living with for the rest of their lives, this threat. Well, Jean, you conclude your recent New York Times article by saying it never pays to forget about North Korea, especially with that nuclear arsenal. Jean, always great to have you on ABC Radio. Thanks so much for having me and I hope to talk to you soon. That's Jean Lee, Senior Fellow at the Wilson Centre in Washington, D.C. From 2008 to 2017, Jean made dozens of extended reporting trips to North Korea. And we'll post a link to her excellent true crime podcast, The Lazarus Heist, on our website. That's about the exploits of North Korean hackers. You're on RN. If you just tuned in, you're on Between the Lines... I'm Tom Switzer. Up next, Stephen Schwartz on 21st Century Enlightenment. In the history of science and ideas, it's often the case that the heretics become the mainstream. But along the way, those brave proponents of new thinking and new truths well, they can pay a heavy price. At one time, burnt at the stake, tortured, imprisoned, excommunicated. In more modern times, shamed, cancelled or trolled. But challenging the dominant views is how knowledge is tested and progress is made. Now, to consider and remember some of the outliers and dissidents who first challenged mainstream thought and then successfully changed it, I'm joined by Stephen Schwartz. He's Emeritus Professor, a former Vice-Chancellor of three universities, Macquarie in Sydney, Murdoch in Perth and Brunel in London. Stephen recently completed his term as Chair of the Australian Curriculum Assessment and Advisory Authority. That's ACARA. Hi there, Stephen. Thanks for being on Between the Lines. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Tom. And I should stress from the outset that uh, Stephen has been a colleague of mine at the Centre for Independent Studies. It's a Sydney-based public policy think tank. Uh, Stephen and I are, I think it's fair to say, we're fellow travellers when it comes to classical liberalism, Stephen. I agree. <laughs> and that's my first question. Why do we need a 21st century enlightenment? Well, you know, Tom, I was thinking what a good answer to that particular obvious question would be. And I noticed that the German philosopher Immanuel Kant was asked pretty much the same question way back in 1780-something. Uh, it took him a whole book to answer it, but to boil it down, Kant equated the Enlightenment with intellectual courage. Before the Enlightenment, people were mm, not really thinking for themselves. They got their guidance from religious doctrines and traditions and people in authority. And what Kant wanted people to do 
um, was to be courageous and to go out and think for themselves. So he gave the Enlightenment a motto. It was sapere ode, which is Latin for dare to be wise. But unfortunately, that sort of courage is getting rare. You're probably aware of the American Supreme Court nominee, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, in mm. confirmation hearing. She was asked to provide a definition for the word woman and replied she couldn't. And the quote, which is a bit embarrassing, I guess, she said, because I'm not a biologist. Well, Jackson's an honors graduate of Harvard. She was editor of the Harvard Law Review. <laughs> she la somehow lacks the courage, and we need to get that courage back. Wiser Every Day, it's a publication. You had a piece there recently on this 21st century enlightenment and a version formed part of a seminar, Science, Skepticism in the Future, that was held at a meeting of the Mont Perelin Society. It's a group of classical liberals that meet twice a year around the world. Now, you begin this by relating the story of Albert Einstein. Now, I found this fascinating, Stephen. He's at Princeton and he was chastised by his dean, for having the same exam questions year after year. What was his reply? Well, his reply was the questions were the same, but the answers keep changing. <laughs> Science <laughs> is never really finished business. Um, you know, as they used to say in the old X-Files TV show, the truth's out there, but you never quite get to it. Knowledge is always provisional. And the best we can really hope to achieve from any kind of scientific method is to get closer and closer to the truth. But we need to always keep an open mind that we may not be 100% right. And you mentioned the big drivers of scientific progress, curiosity, independence of judgment, and skepticism. But you say of the three, skepticism is the most powerful. Why is that? That's because if you are a little bit skeptical, then you'll always question prevailing beliefs. You'll say, well, is this, are we sure that this is right? And that kind of curiosity and questioning is really how you progressively deepen your understanding of the world and your place in it. But need to make sure that uh, you understand and listeners do that scientific skepticism is not just disbelief. Anyone can disbelieve anything. Like you can reject anything you like. Ex-President Trump once said that exercise is bad for you. And um, I remember the South African president, Thabo Mbeki, who didn't mm. think that AIDS and HIV were related. I mean, you can reject anything if you want to, but that's not science. That's really a kind of dogmatism, you know, picking out bits and pieces of information and ignoring anything that doesn't agree with you. Um, that's not really what we have in mind. When we talk about scepticism in science, we talk about scepticism among uh, experts in the field, people who hypothesize, who make observations, who test their observations, and who are happy to accept data when it doesn't agree with their own particular point of view. Well, there's a rich history of scholars, Stephen, who have challenged conventional wisdoms and change the way we think about the world and our place in it. Obviously, Galileo comes to mind. Mm -hmm. But then there's the not-so-well-known 19th-century Hungarian obstetrician. What was his story, and why is it instructive? Yeah, we were talking about Ignaz Semmelweis, and he was a 19th-century obstetrician. His career, like all obstetricians, was devoted to the care of mums and babes, but he was very troubled because he 
found he was working in Vienna. He was Hungarian, but he worked in Vienna. That many mothers were dying of what used to be called childbed fever. Uh, they seemed to be okay, and then suddenly they would get an infection and they would die. We now know, of course, looking from our poor, you know, currently more knowledgeable time, that these um, fevers were caused by infections. But no one knew about infections in Semmelweis's time. Nobody even knew about bacteria. I mean, it'd be many decades before Pasteur would put forward the germ theory of disease. But Semmelweis was a very careful observer. And he noticed that doctors often went from dissecting corpse in the pathology labs in the morgue uh, to examining mums in the maternity ward. And he worried that maybe they were bringing something. He didn't know what it was because no one had discovered it yet, but something was coming from the morgue into the maternity ward and making the mums ill. And so he told everyone they had to wash their hands with a chlorine solution, which was known, of course, to be very cleanly, clean, and or chlorine still used for that purpose. Of course, his, this was challenging the professional competence of his colleagues that he, they may in fact be infecting and killing mothers. So they didn't want to believe him. They resisted for a long time. And even when he talked them into it, and they found that death started to go down, in fact, death stopped when they did that, they still didn't want to believe it. Poor man couldn't convince anyone. He wound up losing his job, returning yeah. back home to Hungary. Um, finally, in desperation, he wanted to demonstrate that he was right. And so he went into the dissecting room, found himself um, a scalpel and actually stabs himself with it to show that an infection would in fact occur. And it did. He was proven right. But unfortunately, it killed him at the same time. And it took many years, maybe up until Pasteur's time before people finally accepted that Semmelweis was right. So instead of being lauded and, and his name revered, this guy dies trying to prove that his idea was right. A very sad story. Now, in modern times, uh, more modern times, I should say, you, you saw another example of how an outsider challenged the conventional wisdom and experienced significant blowback. But then redemption and the winning of a Nobel Prize. Tell us about Robin Warren and Barry Marshall. Uh, what well, did they discover? yeah. So Robin Warren and Barry Marshall both work at the University of Western Australia. Robin's a pathologist, and back in the 1980s, he was working on what he thought were quite unusual bacteria because they lived in the stomachs of patients who had um, peptic ulcers. And at that time, most people believed that the um, environment of the stomach was too acidic to actually allow bacteria to develop. But he thought it did, and he thought he could discover it. Um, the received wisdom was against him, right? Ulcers were caused by stress, people thought, or spicy foods, or taking too many aspirin. So not too many people took him seriously, but a young doctor, Barry Marshall, did. Uh, he, um, a, a person who himself was a bit of a, uh, a rebel uh, and not necessarily someone who would accept the received wisdom without questioning. So they went off to do the work. They tried to culture the bacteria. It was very hard to do. Um, but because of a kind of really nice accident, uh, people didn't wash the Petri dishes prior to the um, Easter break. And when they came back, there were the bacteria. So they now knew they were there. 
and that they were probably responsible for ulcers, but still couldn't get people to believe them. So Marshall tried to do the same thing that Semmelweis did. He wanted to infect himself to prove uh, that his theory was correct, and he did, and he got ill. Not he, fortunately, not fatally ill for him, uh, but it still took quite a few years before he could convince people. And there were vested interests. There were drug yes. companies that would see their profits go down from making other things that wouldn't treat it properly. So it was a hard thing. But he did win. They both wound up winning the Nobel Prize for their contributions to, to medicine. So both Warren and Marshall were up against not only entrenched thinking but also vested interests, but they were ultimately vindicated both intellectually and politically uh, professionally. That's a great story, Stephen. My guest is Stephen Schwartz. He's a senior fellow at the Centre for Independent Studies, where I also work, and this is our ends between the lines with me, Tom Switzer. Stephen, this is a lovely passage from your recent piece. You write that resistance is not always futile or wrong. Sometimes new discoveries turn out not to be discoveries at all. Tell us about self-delusion and the quest for cold fusion. <laughs> yes, it's good. I mean, it's important to remember that scientists are people. Uh, and, of course, they have a process and they have a strategy and they have techniques, but they also bring with them all of the flaws of humanity, you know, greed and pride and uh, inability to admit you are wrong and so on. So the, the, the cold fusion story was in the 1980s. Um, when two um, actually very well-known chemists, Stanley Pons and Martin Fleischmann, said they discovered a source of energy that was non-polluting and can go forever, and it was named cold fusion. Their university was very excited about it. They leaked the story. The Wall Street Journal splashed it across the front page. Uh, they were given grants and, and so on. And it, because they were well-known scientists, they were taken seriously, probably because they didn't, really test their hypotheses by uh, sending their data to other scientists and they went public prior to even publishing it in a journal, no one could really replicate their experiments too carefully because they didn't know exactly what Pons and Fleischmann had done. Uh, but as the results came in, it became clear that no one else but they could see cold fusion. Uh, and, the, you know, at this point, there was money already given to them for uh, research. There was the um, public, all of the publicity in the press, and nothing came of any of it. There was sensational media, gullible people, but no new evidence ever demonstrated that there was such a thing as cold fusion. And interestingly, I think um, they didn't really change the minds of the scientists involved even after all of that. <laughs> yeah. They still insisted they were right. Uh, but that's, I guess, the virtue of science is that eventually you will get closer and closer to the truth. I, uh, I can imagine many of our listeners tuning in would be lamenting uh, that the principles of the Enlightenment, do they really function today? And that brings me to this question. This is really the final issue we need to address here, Stephen, because this is a fascinating discussion. And, and in many respects, this program is all about challenging conventional wisdoms, not so much on science, but just on politics and history. As society fractures, as it polarises... Experts, the elites, they're regarded with deep suspicion, even hostility. So the question here is, is an enlightened re-engagement even possible in the 21st century? Stephen Schwartz. Well, it's a very good question and uh, I don't want to give a negative answer because I want to believe it is. Um, but it's true, we've slipped into a kind of um, 
irrational romanticism where we seem to prefer mythology and intuition and emotion rather than reasoned analysis. I mean, the other name for an enlightenment is the age of reason, isn't it? Um, and mm. when we find people who don't go along, they become treated as heretics and bigots and or both, you know, both of those things. And um, I, I've got an example very close to home. Uh, Garth Cooper is a New Zealand professor. He and some of his colleagues criticized a proposal to give Maori origin myths the same weight as science in the school curriculum. He, he didn't say we shouldn't teach those things, but he you know, acknowledged that the indigenous perspectives make an important part of the curriculum. He just didn't consider that they were in the same semantic category as physics. What happened? Hundreds of academics and students signed an open letter condemning him and his colleagues saying that they caused untold harm and hurt. Even their academic union denounced them. Um, and the vice chancellor sent an email to staff saying that they'd caused considerable hurt and dismay. You know, defending science is exactly what we want professors of science to do, really. And I, I find it very worrying and distressing that we've reached a point where we can't have scientists have a scientific view about a matter like physics, and we do really need to do something about it. Yeah. Stephen, as always, sound in style and substance. Great having you on Radio National. Thanks very much. It was great to be here. Stephen Schwartz, Emeritus Professor, former Vice-Chancellor of three universities, Macquarie in Sydney, Murdoch in Perth and Brunel in London, and we'll post a link to his article, 21st Century Enlightenment, on the Between the Lines homepage. Up next, historian Sheila Fitzpatrick on the shortest history of the Soviet Union. This is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer. Well, during the past eight years, this program has been honoured to invite many world-acclaimed experts to address modern history, as well as contemporary issues surrounding politics and international affairs. One of those distinguished intellectuals is my next guest, Sheila Fitzpatrick. She's Australian, though she spent much of her academic time abroad, and she's one of the world's leading experts on 20th century Soviet Russian history. Sheila's award-winning books include My Father's Daughter, Mishka's War, On Stalin's Team, and The Russian Revolution. Her new book is called The Shortest History of the Soviet Union. That's published by Black Ink Books. And what a story. Soviet Russia arrived in the world accidentally, 1917, and departed unexpectedly in 1991. Now, these days, Sheila is professor at the Australian Catholic University's Institute for Humanities and Social Sciences, and it's a great pleasure to welcome her back to Between the Lines. Hi there, Sheila. Hello. Now, you've distinguished yourself as an historian of the Soviet Union, mainly in the US, before you returned to Australia about a decade ago. What prompted you to write this thesis? Well, I was asked to write A Shortest History of Russia. And I thought, no, that isn't my bag, but it would be really interesting to write the shortest history of the Soviet Union because suddenly it stopped existing and therefore it acquired a shape in a way it didn't have before. And so I said, yes, and that's how the book came about. 
Well, no understanding of the Soviet Union is really satisfactory without understanding what preceded the Bolsheviks in 1917. Of course, I'm referring to the Tsarist monarchy of the Romanovs. Now, question, why had Russia been immune to all those revolutionary upheavals in Europe of the 18th and 19th centuries? It did have peasant revolts. That was its thing. It was mainly a peasant population, slow to industrialize, therefore relatively slow to urbanize and uh, and and acquire a, 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 an urban working class. And so I think that that basically accounts for the slowness to have the kind of revolution that involves the cities. And then comes the Russian revolutions. There's two of them in, 20, in 1917 and in 2017. You and I mark those anniversaries adversaries with uh, two programs on Between the Lines. Now, that led to the USSR, and that included Russia and all these republics. Now, the Bolshevik Revolution, that was meant to spark off revolution throughout Europe. That plan did not work. Why? I wouldn't call it a plan. You know, it was an expectation. Their Marxist understanding of history was that capitalism collapsed, would collapse uh, in the fullness of time and uh, mm. in through proletarian revolution. But their sense was that Russia was not uh, the most advanced in terms of development of an industrial working class. And therefore, uh, while revolution might come in Russia, that would be in terms of the weakest link in the capitalist chain snapping. So they snapped. Okay. Yes. <laughs> but then the rest of the tra- chain, uh, I, well, I, I'm a bit puzzled, in trouble with my metaphor here, but the chain sort of reformed. That's right. So Russia, unlike, say, what, Britain and Germany at this period of time, we're talking 1917, it was still only at the beginning of the capitalist phase, if you like. So it was not really ripe for proletarian socialist revolution, or as at least that's how the Marxist theorists would put it, but it still happened, though, in 1917. Yeah, well, it seems to me should only surprise you if you're a Marxist, because otherwise (laughs) what you might say is, okay, you've got a country uh, with quite a few problems in the midst of rapid change, which is always, you know, unsettling and difficult for governments to keep a hold of. Uh, They get into a war and they do very badly (laughs) and a revolution comes. Yeah, I studied the revolution both at high school and university. It's a fascinating subject. But I'd actually forgotten about the role that Vladimir Lenin's economic policies actually changed things in the early 20s. Now, you make it very clear that this so-called new economic policy, this is following the, the 1917 revolution, that actually reflected not socialism or communism, but market principles. And there was a degree of private sector involvement in the economy. Sheila? Yeah, it was. They were backing off from their their first ambitious uh, war communism, so-called uh, programs, which involved uh, uh, nationalisation, including of trade, uh, because basically they couldn't make them work. So they backed off. It, it was not a wonderful period in in Soviet history because it was a post-war period of reconstruction. Do post-Lenin Marxists, Bolsheviks, communists, call them what you want, do they feel that Lenin sold out by embracing market principles with his NEP? Not usually, no. Mainly they, uh, they, they see that as, uh, as something that he was forced to do by economic contingency. I mean, in large part because it was necessary to, uh, it, it wasn't working to simply take the food 
uh, take agricultural produce from the peasantry. It was necessary to put back a, a procedure for, for paying for it, otherwise they wouldn't sell it. So I think the necessity for it was recognised. The question would be always would have then been for how long? And he said it will be for quite a while. But on the other hand, it was a slightly difficult policy to put across actually within the party as opposed to the population as a whole. So it's unclear, you know, what how long he had in mind. Uh, but it was, in fact, ended uh, by his successor, Stalin, at the end of the 20s. You're on ABC's Radio National with me, Tom Switzer. My guest is Sheila Fitzpatrick, and we're talking about her latest book, The Shortest History of the Soviet Union. It's published by Black Ink Books. Sheila, Lenin died only a few years after he led the Bolshevik Revolution, 1917. How did Joseph Stalin outmanoeuvre Leon Trotsky in the Soviet succession struggle in the 1920s? His big uh, advantage, Stalin's big advantage, was that he was the general secretary of the party uh, and uh, the members of the ruling group, the Politburo, were elected by uh, annual at that point, congresses of the party, elected. Uh, And he was the man who had the good contacts uh, out in the provinces, basically, because as secretary, he was the, the person who, who, who both often appointed them and had dealings with them. Uh, Trotsky, who was extremely uh, visible and famous, uh, was also, in a sense, hesitant to put himself forward for, leader, for, for anything like a leadership role. In part, I think that he thought that being Jewish was a problem in terms of leadership in, in the Soviet Union. Well, well, let's turn to Stalinism. I mean, that because that really defines the Soviet Union for about a quarter century from, what, the late 20s to the death of Stalin, 1953. This is a question that's dogged historians for generations. Did Stalin betray Lenin and the Bolsheviks or was he the logical outcome of the revolution? Sheila Fitzpatrick. He certainly saw himself as the logical outcome and the successor uh, to Lenin in his major... Uh, initiatives, the early policy initiatives, uh, which involved uh, collectivization and the the first five-year plan, which was essentially an industrialization plan, he certainly felt that that was squarely in the lines of, uh, in the line of Lenin's modernization, socialist modernization objective. And I think that was a a reasonable uh, supposition Now, if we get to things like the great purges of the late 30s, whether that sort of almost random bloodletting is something one could uh, imagine Lenin doing, well, that's another question. But it's, uh, I think it's hard to give a definitive answer. But the notion of a complete betrayal by Stalin, I I think in the sense that we, we got that from Trotsky and Trotsky was the, uh, you know, the man who didn't get the job, so to speak. Indeed, yeah. And, of course, a significant part of the Stalin story is World War II. Tell us briefly about the significance of the Great Fatherland War. This is a war to save Russia from its foreign invaders rather than as a war to save the world's first socialist state. That's what you say in your book, Sheila. Yes, well, the the Second World War or Great Fatherland War was tremendously uh, important uh, for Russia 
And it became, in a sense, uh, for the Soviet Union, it became something like the new foundation myth, uh, crowding out the revolution in a, in, uh, in a sense, because it was a very hard fought struggle, uh, which ends uh, in a victory that was, uh, I think, astonished many people. Uh, and that became the sort of, yes, a foundation of the Soviet sense of identity and, and self-worth. By the way, do you think that Vladimir Putin today plays off those sentiments when he rails against NATO expansion into Russia's near abroad? Oh, I'm sure. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, because, I mean, he, he always makes the argument that Ukraine's a, a vast terrain of flat land that the, the Nazis crossed to attack Russia. Um, but the, the, the counter-argument is, and this is the conventional wisdom, Sheila, is that Putin really just wants to recreate the Soviet Union. Yes, well, probably the, those two things are a bit hard to separate, aren't they? He would ha- undoubtedly, on, on the NATO question, uh, Putin would know, as, uh, uh, as, as did his predecessor, uh, his two predecessors, Gorbachev and Yeltsin, that basically uh, Russia thought they had a promise from the West that NATO would not expand uh, even into Eastern Europe. Uh, let alone into the uh, into the republics that left the Soviet Union uh, in 1991. Uh, so there's there's a feeling there of um, yeah of having been deceived, I suppose, to some degree on the Soviet part. Sheila Fitzpatrick is one of the world's leading experts on 20th century Soviet Russian history. Sheila Stalin died in 1953. His crimes were denounced by his successor Khrushchev. How do historians distinguish between the two eras? First, I think one should say that uh, that while Khrushchev denounced some things about him, he didn't uh, about his policies. He didn't denounce everything. So it's a, it's a mixture. Uh, he talked. Uh, he denounced the purges, for example, uh, but uh, didn't and and excesses in collectivization, but didn't repudiate collectivization. Didn't, of course, repudiate also the the the, the socialist objective. But historians would see the uh, the the, uh, the Khrushchev period as uh, quite sharply separated from. Uh, from the Stalin period and marked by attempts to reform within within a socialist context. Yeah, and you make the point that the Khrushchev period is remembered as the thaw. And Ukraine, you also make this point, I found this interesting, it did well under Khrushchev, who himself was Ukrainian, right? Khrushchev was not exactly Ukrainian. He was ethnically Russian, born in Ukraine. Right. But he was he'd, he'd served in Ukraine. He'd been Moscow's man in Ukraine. Uh, and he f- he felt complete. He felt at home there. He felt at home in both identities. I think. And when he became the top man in Moscow, uh, he, he brought quite a few Ukrainians, his old comrades from Ukraine, uh, from the Ukrainian party apparatus. He brought them in, and so Ukraine had a very good representation in the Politburo in the last. 20, 30 years of, of the Soviet Union. And in, in general, it was it was a, a, a good a good period for you, Soviet Ukraine. And I think under Khrushchev, Crimea, that's when it went from Russia to Ukraine, correct? That's right. Well, that that's generally been interpreted both as a sort of almost random act, you know, without a, a clear rationale, and as Khrushchev's uh, statement of friendship with his old mates back in Ukraine. Now, Khrushchev falls a couple of years after the Cuban Missile Crisis. That's 62. So Khrushchev is gone in 64, and his eventual successor is Brezhnev, a cautious pragmatist, you say. Yes, 
Right. Yes. Well, one of the things about Khrushchev was that he was regard he was spoken of as a harebrained schemer. He had all kinds of quite ambitious uh, programs, which didn't always completely uh, come off, like the, the the planting of the virgin lands in Kazakhstan and so on. Uh, but he was particularly seen as volatile and 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 a little bit uncontrollable and uh, impetuous in uh, relation uh, to the Cuban Missile Crisis, which of course he finally came through, uh, but nevertheless, uh, his uh, those around him were very rattled by that. And uh, so Brezhnev, who was uh, a sort of organization man type, uh, he, he looked really good by comparison, stable, not likely to rock the boat. Yeah, and he's there until about 82, and there's a few Soviet leaders before Gorbachev now, Gorbachev, of course, is well known for glasnost and perestroika. I'm sure many of our leaders remember this from the 1980s, but just give us a, a 101 history lesson about glasnost and perestroika and the significance in the 1980s. Sheila. Gorbachev came out of the uh, the Communist Party apparatus. He, he had been the, the party boss in, in Stavropol. And I, so he comes in as a younger man, into a, a leadership which had uh, been looking pretty geriatric, uh, not just Brezhnev, but uh, the, those around him, and uh, and two of the people, two of the two Brezhnev successors had died in, in in rapid succession. So he comes in. He does not come in with a reputation as a reformer, uh, but once in. He decided to undertake a, a, a program of, of quite radical reform, both in the economy and, and the, in the socio-political sphere. Now, the nature of what economic uh, reform he would undertake never became in, entirely clear. The, the sense was the current system was too uh, too centralised, too bureaucratised and wasn't responding uh, well enough to, um, uh, wasn't able to innovate successfully. Yes, and of course, uh, Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev form a very close relationship in the mid to late 1980s. I'll never forget in the 1984 when Reagan was running for re-election, he was asked why he, Reagan, unlike his predecessors, hadn't met any of the Soviet leaders in the early to mid-80s. And he just said, well, they kept dying on me. <laughs> now, the prevailing wisdom is that it was inevitable that the Soviet Union would collapse as indeed it did in 1991. Of course, you had the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 that helped set the scene for the downfall of the Soviet Union. Attitudes were very different in the early 1980s, Sheila, and you talk about this. Tell us more. Let's take right at the beginning of 1980 because then they get into Afghanistan and things get a bit more complicated uh, or get less good, basically. But at the very beginning of the 1980s, this was in many ways a high point of the Soviet regime. They had military parity, parity with the US. They're a superpower. Uh, living standards are rising, if not as fast as had been hoped. Life expectancy is increasing. Consumer goods are more available. It's a, a, a time when, apart from the fact that there's a general feeling around that it's all rather boring and constrained, uh, a general feeling on in, among educated people, perhaps things are looking quite good. So it is. Uh, I, I start my book with that vignette in order to perhaps underline the remarkableness of the fact that scarcely more than a decade later, the Soviet Union 
uh, has gone out of existence. Things were looking bright a decade earlier, as you just said, but things obviously deteriorated dramatically in the course of a decade. What happened? As I see it, contingency, as so often, plays a big role. And here, the major contingencies appear to me to be Gorbachev's reform program, which he started with the political sphere, and that meant uh, opening everything up for criticism. Uh, The criticism, uh, especially of the past, turned out to be very demoralising for the society. You you have a sort of degree, a crisis of faith, I think, uh, and, and legitimacy, uh, which ended with the very rapid and remarkable disintegration of the Soviet Union, which was actually only possible because of its union structure. That is the fact that it consisted of a number of uh, union republics with strong leaders who, in the end, led by the Russian Republic and Yeltsin, decided to leave the union. You attach no significance to the role Ronald Reagan played in the collapse of Soviet communism, but many American conservatives would push back and say to you, Sheila, what about Reagan's increased defence budget in the 1980s? What about putting those Pershing missiles into Europe in the 1980s? SDI, derided as Star Wars at the time, his blunt condemnation of the evil empire, They'd say this all put economic and moral pressure on the Soviets. Sheila Fitzpatrick. Americans do always like to have themselves in the centre of the story and to feel that, uh, you know, whatever happens in the world happened because, uh, because of their actions. I don't, I don't say that these actions were, uh, were irrelevant. They're part of the general picture and, and uh, no doubt part of Gorbachev's feeling that reform was necessary. But basically, I would, I, I would think that domestic factors are much more important. Well, it's a fascinating story, 1917 to 1991. The new book is called The Shortest History of the Soviet Union. It's published by Black Ink Books. And the author has been my guest, Sheila Fitzpatrick. Great to have you again on Between the Lines, Sheila. Thank you. Well, that's it for another show. And remember to hear this or past episodes, including my recent exchanges with Francis Fukuyama, John Mearsheimer, Catherine Stoner, Mary Dijewski and Alexander Downer, they are all on the Ukraine crisis. Just go to abc.net.au slash rn and follow the prompts to Between the Lines. Or, of course, you can just go to the ABC Listen app where you can download us for free. I'm Tom Switzer and hope you can tune in again next week. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.